If you've been riding with us on our series through the Sermon on the Mount, you probably noticed a lot of things about Jesus, among them being that he does not beat around the bush. Jesus is a straight shooter. And if you've seen that through what, where we've been in the sermon so far, I believe you're going to see it even more as he wraps it up today with, with some direct challenges. And people who shoot straight with us, I don't know about you, sometimes at first it can be intimidating, right? But in our world, I find straight shooters kind of refreshing because there is a lot of nonsense out there. I mean, just one trivial example I saw this week. This is an actual news story. There's a dairy in France that plans to put diapers and masks on cows to reduce emissions. They had a picture of a cow with a diaper on. I, I saw that, and I thought about my grandpa Mitchell, who died in 2001, went to heaven, thought, man, if he could come back for one day, and just look around, I could hear him saying, what in the dickens happened down here while I was gone? Yeah. It's literally a, a world gone mad, and that's a trivial example. But there are a lot of deeper spiritual issues where we see the same nonsense in our world. But we got to ask a question, is the nonsense out there that's being pushed, is it adding to the joy in people's lives? I like the words that Steve Kumar wrote. He said, Our secular culture may dismiss God as irrelevant to our existence and give the seductive impression that God is on a long vacation. He says, This popular myth may provide some with a sense of freedom and autonomy, but it has not delivered us from boredom anxiety, suicide, stress, drugs, crime, addiction to entertainment, and other neuroses. Victor Frankl got more to the point. He wrote, more people today have the means to live by, but no meaning to live for. Does, Does that not resonate as we look around our world today? Jesus cuts through all of that nonsense in the world, forcing us to a point of decision. Why? To draw people to his Father and to draw people to abundant life. Think of what he said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So it's with that intention in mind that I want to go through four questions that he leads us to wrestle with as he wraps up his Sermon on the Mount. The first question is this, which path are you on? Which path are you on? Verse 13 of Matthew 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. It says the the way is easy. And I like what Charles Erdman wrote about that. He said it's not difficult for one to be lost. One only needs to follow the crowd. 
But what's the true state of the person on that broad way? What is their true state according to Jesus? Where are they headed? To destruction. Like the way William Hendrickson described their true state. He said, the person on the broad way is as chained as is the prisoner with the iron band around his leg. The band that is fastened to a chain which is cemented into the wall of a dungeon. Every sin he commits draws tighter that chain until at last it crushes him completely. The broad way. He goes on to talk about another way. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He says this way is hard. Do we not find that to be true? He's already talked about persecution earlier in this message for those who faithfully follow Jesus. I like the words of a brief four-line poem. Christians, seek not yet repose. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. That's where the Christian finds himself or herself in this fallen world. We saw an NHL player who experienced a little bit of that this week, right? He refused to participate on Gay Pride Night. They asked him why he referred to his Russian Orthodox faith. And there were a lot of people that were excited about his decision. His, his jerseys were selling like wildfire online mm -hmm. in support of him, but he also caught a lot of flack. Some of the most extreme words I saw, somebody said, why don't you go back to Russia and join the war? The life of the faithful Christ follower is a hard way. But where does it lead? Jesus says the way is hard that leads to life. When it gets hard, believer, hold on to where the way is heading. He says those who find it are few. A question here, how many ways does Jesus say there are to choose from? Well, there's one right choice, but how many ways does he say there are? Two. One leads to destruction. One leads to life. How many ways does the world say there is? Oh, there, there, there are many ways to, to heaven or happiness or nirvana or godhood or whatever you want to call it. And all the ways are equally valid. There's no such thing as absolute objective truth. It's all a matter of preference. But the truth is, whether they admit it or not, everyone believes in absolute truth. Someone comes up to you and says, there is no such thing as absolute truth. You know what you ask them? Is that absolutely true? It, it's, a, it's an unending circle. It doesn't work. And one of my favorite stories uh, to bring that home is a story about a professor and a student in a philosophy class. The, the student believed there's no such thing as absolute truth or objective truth, and he wrote a paper about it. And man, he wrote that paper well. It was every bit as long as it needed to be. The grammar was right. Documentation was right. He used points to back up his, his thesis, and, and on those standards, it, it should have been an A. The professor read it, thoughtfully put an F on the paper 
He said, I, and he wrote, I gave you an F because you turned in your paper in a blue folder. And I don't like blue. Guess what happened? That, that student who professed not to be an absolute or a objective truth came in and started saying to the professor, hey, that's not fair that you, you graded this paper according to your preference. You got to look at the objective truth. I did my research. I, I put everything in here. And he said, wait a second. Are, are you the one who wrote a paper against absolute objective truth now coming to me on the basis of absolute objective truth and telling me that not everything is according to our preferences, that there is such a thing as right and wrong? And the student reluctantly looked down at the floor. He knew he had been had. And I think about that, and I think about the church of Jesus Christ and the message we have, God's word. And I want to say this. This world does not need a church that has gone woke. This world needs a church that has gone back to the word of God. Amen. That's what this world needs. Let me, let me say it a little more in depth. If we twist God's word to somehow make it more relevant, we lose his transcendent truth. You know what that does? That leaves us as a church ironically irrelevant mm -hmm. and impotent to address the deepest needs of the unbelievers we love. We let go of the only thing we have to offer them. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. How many of you have heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Our friends over here let us borrow a book by her this week. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. You know why she called it that? Because before Christ, she was a, a practicing lesbian. Along her life's journey, she met a pastor, Ken, and his wife, Floyd. And Ken and Floyd invited her over to dinner. They showed her hospitality, gave her a nice meal, and at that first dinner, uh, they didn't do a lot of talking. They did a lot of listening, a lot of listening to her story. And later on, as their relationship grew, Rosaria invited them over to her house and had a meal. And it was at that later meal that she says they, they gave her an overview of the Bible. And listen to what she says about Pastor Ken. She writes, his focus was on redemption on how the Old Testament concealed the cross and the New Testament revealed it. His point of contact was Calvary. And it made me think for the first time about what Jesus had endured at Calvary. She writes, if what this guy said was true, then everything I believed, every jot and tittle was false. Now, sometime later, I want you to listen to what happened the night she met Jesus in her own words. She said, that night I prayed. And asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus truly was a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real, and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like a sin at all. 
It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if his life was actually my life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. And one of my favorite lines about when she described the relationship she had with Ken and Floyd, the pastor and his wife, she said this. She said, Ken and Floyd did not identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. You get it? That's why churches flying rainbow flags to condone the sin of homosexuality is not the answer. The answer is churches who love homosexuals and cling to Jesus Christ and speak his truth to them. Great news, whatever kind of sinner you are, you think about the gates and the paths. Jesus says he is the door. He's the door. Remember John 10, 7? Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You also think about those paths. Here's some more good news. Jesus is the way. Remember, they want to know the way to the Father. What did he say, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which gate have you entered? Which path are you on? The narrow or the broad? Second question. Who are you listening to? True or false prophets? True or false teachers? Verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, they look good and sound good on the surface, but inside there's a whole different motive. What's he say? How do you tell the difference? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Anybody know the answer to that? No. No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, he says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he repeats his premise here. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You think about false teachers, false prophets within the church. I like the way Vance Havner put it, as only he could. He said, more harm is done to the church by termites on the inside than woodpeckers on the outside. There's preaching that goes out from pulpits just like this one, that goes out on podcasts in the name of Jesus, that comes from false prophets and false teachers. So you say, well, what fruits should we look for in those we listen to? How do, how do we tell the difference? Sound doctrine. Does it line up with God's word? That's why we have to know God's word. I hope you're in 
God's word more than you listen to any teacher. So we can know sound doctrine and a life that reflects it. You could, you could summarize that in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit that Frank's talking about on Saturdays. Does a person emulate that? Or the works of the flesh? Those lists are both in there. Line them up. So that's the life, but you say, well, what messages are false teachers bringing in the church today? Well, as always, there are still encouragers of the broad way, even within the church. In the Old Testament, it was the prophets that said, peace, peace. When there was no peace because God's judgment was coming because the people loved their sin and rejected him. But there are prophets saying it's all good. It's all good. Watch out for any preacher or teacher where there's never any mention of your sin or their own. Mm -hmm. Encouragers of the Broadway. What's another message false teachers bring within the church? You can earn your salvation. Just, just grit your teeth and try harder. A lot of moral stories, a lot of challenges to behave, but never a mention of your need for a Savior who died and rose again. Third kind. Kind of indicates that your fruit doesn't really matter. You're saved by grace, so live however you feel. <laughs> listen, if you listen to a teacher over and over, and you never hear mention of a holy life for a believer and the cost of following Jesus, run away. That is a false teacher. They don't line up with the preaching we find from John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 8. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Unless you just see, think that's burly old John, listen to Jesus. Matthew 4, 17 says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm going to paraphrase a preacher who blasted this out on Facebook. He said, if repentance is not a part of your walk of faith, there's a good chance you really worship yourself. That jumped off his page when I saw that. Because what does Jesus say? John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will what? Obey my teaching. Michael Green says the theological and religious world is full of hearing. It's overloaded with God talk. What will thrill the heart of God and make the pagans realize that the gospel is true is practical, generous obedience. If you say, man, I want to make sure I listen to the right teachers, and I want to make sure I have that fruit in my life. Here's the good news. Jesus says he is the vine. He's the source of that. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Who are you listening to? What kind of fruit are you bearing? Third big question. When it comes to salvation, which are you? A possessor? You, you, you truly have it? Or a pretender? 
these words of Jesus are perhaps the most disturbing in this whole section. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. A lot of people say, Lord, Lord. The interesting thing is D.A. Carson brings out in the scary thing, he says at first glance they use the right language, they, they show biblical piety, at least outwardly, and they're indistinguishable from true prophets. What's, what's going on here? Well, sometimes people say Jesus too lightly. They treat his name almost like some kind of magic formula. It's, it's people who have no relationship with Jesus that, hey, I wear a gold cross. I, I say the rosary this many times. I go to church every Sunday and sing songs about him. I, I do religious things. It's like the people in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah said, destruction's coming because of your sin. But there were people in the nation saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why were they doing that? Hey, we got God's temple here. Nothing bad's ever going to happen. But what God was trying to get through to them it, through Jeremiah was just because you have my temple there is no guarantee. Because you talk about the temple of the Lord, but you have no love for the Lord of the temple. You think about that. And I think about what J. Vernon McGee says about those who say Jesus too lightly. It's not the outward profession, but the inward relationship to a crucified but living Savior that is all important. Some people say Jesus too lightly. Some people say Jesus or say Lord, Lord too late. Look at verse 22. It says, on that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, what day is that? The day of judgment. When this life is over and they stand before him, that is too late. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's why Paul says now is the day. Now is the day of salvation. What do they go on to say, though? They say, hey, Jesus, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's quite a resume on the outside, right? Some have wondered if Judas could count himself in that group. Was he with the, the apostles when they were sent out to cast out demons and things? Yeah. But what does Jesus say? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This one's challenging because evidently, at least outwardly, someone can be doing good works, even signs and wonders. Totally apart from a relationship with Jesus. We're warned about that in Thessalonians. In the last time, Satan is going to power a lot of signs and wonders. Right? Sometimes it's satanic in its origin. But sometimes these outward good works are nothing more than works of our flesh. They have nothing to do with God or His Spirit. I like what Major Ian Thomas says about works of the flesh. He's pretty straight to it too. He says there's nothing quite so nauseating 
or pathetic as the flesh trying to be holy. The flesh has a perverted bent for righteousness, but such righteousness as it may achieve is always a self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is always self-conscious righteousness. And self-conscious righteousness is always full of self-praise. The nature of the flesh never changes. No matter how you may coerce it or conform it, it is rotten through and through. Even with a Bible under its arm, a check for missions in its hand, and an evangelical look on its face. Why? Because of what Isaiah says in chapter 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Back to verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let me ask you a question. What is at the core and the beginning of doing the will of God? John 6. There's a group of people that had an interesting question for Jesus. John 6, 28. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? His answer must have shocked them. I'm sure they were looking for a rundown of go out and do this, this, this. You know what he said? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. To believe in Jesus Christ. To put your faith in Jesus Christ. If any of this is convicting, I have really good news here too. Jesus is the friend of sinners. That's what his opponents rightly called him. Matthew eleven nineteen. he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He spent time with people they would have nothing to do with. And you think about when he said, Depart from me, I never knew you. Here's some more good news. Jesus is the shepherd who knows his sheep by name. John 10, 2. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Have you put your faith in the good shepherd who gave his life for you? One more point of good news here. If self-righteousness won't do it, where do we get the righteousness we need? Jesus is the righteousness of all who put their faith in him. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says to believers, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So let me ask you the most important question you will ever hear. When it comes to salvation, are you a possessor or a pretender? Final question, what are, what are you building on? The rock or the sand? I like what William Hendrickson said here with this idea of building. To live is to build. 
Every ambition a man cherishes, every thought he conceives, every word he speaks, and every deed he performs is, as it were, a building block. Gradually, the structure of his life arises. With that in mind, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, does he say everyone who hears these words of mine and does them that the rain and the wind won't come? No, it's coming. Just like for the second group we'll get to in a moment. But he does say that house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. There's really good news here too. Jesus is the rock. He cannot be separated from his words. We put our faith in him as our rock and believers then every moment of every day choose how we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, right? You think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that is that which is done for Christ, that which will last, or wood, hay, and straw, that which will not last. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Listen, we all know what I said about the fact that storms still come, right? Some of you are in the middle of them right now. It could be a sickness. It could be a season of need, a, a season of deep discouragement persecution. I don't know what the storm is, but here's the good news for the house that will not fall because it's founded on Jesus. One, God is with you in your trial. He's with you right now. Romans 8, 38, Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth and just in case you missed anything nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you loving that Josh Wilson song that's out right now says something like the things that I'm afraid of are all afraid of you? <laughs> Not one of those things can separate you, believer, from the love of Christ. He's with us in our trials. Secondly, he will carry us safely home to our eternal destination with him. 1 Peter 1.5, Peter describes believers as those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What you being guarded by, believer? God's power. He will carry you safely home, even through the trials. Now what about the other group? Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. 
and great was the fall of it. You say, well, what's he, what's he talking about building on sand? What does that mean? It is a life built apart from Christ in man's wisdom and man's power and for man's ambitions alone. What does he tell us? He says, that house will fall here and now when trials come. And without a turnaround, it will fall eternally in the lake of fire. I think about that, and I think about how sand castles are fun to build, right? But I don't know anybody who wants to live in one. Do you? Are you building on the rock? The rock of Jesus Christ? We've done this over a matter of weeks. I imagine that crowd, as they got to the end of all this, and, and we see what their reaction was. As when Jesus, verse 28, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The, the word's been translated dumbfounded, struck out of themselves. Some of them had their mouths open. They had never heard teaching like this before. Why? He says he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, if we could have been there that day. How thankful we are that he's recorded it for us. But I like the words of Michael Green right here. He says, we find that at the end of the sermon, we are not permitted to merely admire the teaching. We are challenged to bow down to the preacher. Why? Because this is the manifesto of the king. This is the king of kings and lord of lords speaking. And I wonder, in this room, are any of us there having gone through this? Are you there ready and willing to bow down at the feet of the king? Maybe someone saying, hey, I need to accept what he did for me on the cross and resurrection. I need the meaning he came to bring because I've been looking everywhere else and I haven't found it. Today could be your day. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're a believer and you say, man, I look at the life he calls us to. And I want to live that way. I want to live like Christ, but I can't. I can't on my own. You're saying, how? <laughs> how? Well, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. I got to show you some pictures to do it. You, many of you will recognize the folks up there, even though they're small. That's the Pachecos. Uh, Savannah, Jose, Sarah, and Stetson. They're at a camp out east that they go to often. And you'll see a spring of water there. I'll tell you the story about that spring that's on a, a plaque that's back there. As during camp meeting days in the 1800s, this spring was the source of water for the campers and their horses and cows. The spring was on private property and the owner built a fence around it, leaving the campers without water. The people prayed that water would be supplied. That night during a severe storm, the spring moved outside the fence to church property. This spring is never to be sold, but remain as it was providentially given property of Epworth United Methodist Church. Marker Place, 1985. Wow. <laughs> How awesome is that? Why do I share that? Because the same almighty God who moved that physical spring 
inside the borders of that camp can move rivers of living water in the person of his Holy Spirit inside of the believer. But I don't want you to take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus said, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So you say, what's that mean for my life as I go out from here? What it means is summed up by Warren Wiersbe. When a person is truly born again, he has the Spirit of God living within. And the Spirit enables him to know and do the Father's will. God's love in his heart motivates him to obey God and serve others. Now, if we really believe that, believers in Jesus Christ, are we going to go out there and aim to, to live mediocre lives? I, I like what Peter Marshall said here. You think of all that God's given us up to the person of God and the Holy Spirit within us. And he says sometimes we're like people all suited out in deep sea diving gear, marching out bravely to pull out plugs in bathtubs. You hear what he's saying? We are called to so much more because we've been gifted with so much more. And I, I want to close by asking us to bow our heads. And we're going to do something that we don't often do here at the church next door. I'm going to ask that every eye stay close as we wrap up this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling us to response as he drives this conclusion home, right? So... I want to issue two invitations. There may be two groups here. The first one, you're here. You've heard of this Savior, this Lord, this King, who calls us to this level of righteousness that's impossible on our own. And you've been confronted face-to-face -face with your sin and your inability to do anything about it. That your righteousness is like filthy rags. And maybe God brought you here today to come to the foot of the cross and say, Yes, I believe. I believe I can't do it on my own. I've tried, God. I've looked for life out here, and it's not to be found. I believe it's found in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe you rose again, and I invite you to be my Savior, my Lord. I want to walk with you. If there's anyone here who made that decision today, could you just raise your hand if I can pray for you? Now the second group, the second group. Hey, there's believers here going through this message of Sermon on the Mount. If you're like me, you see areas where, yeah, I'm walking with Jesus there, but man, when he called me out on this, I, I need his help to grow. I need to walk more in the Holy Spirit and less in the flesh in this area or that area. How I love my enemies or be true to my word, or whatever it was in these few chapters. If there's any believers in here that say, yeah, I want to just prayerfully commit and ask God for his help to live out what Jesus has preached here in the power of the Spirit, would you raise your hand? Would anyone commit to following the King in these areas? I want to pray, Lord.
We know these hands that have gone up, including my own. We cannot grasp this on our own. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you've sent him. And I pray that those rivers of living water would empower us to go out of here and be the church you've called us to be. You have not called us to mediocrity in our short time here. You've called us to be salt and light of the world in Jesus Christ. Please send us out on that mission, with that mission burning in our hearts, to live for your glory and as a witness to a world that needs the straight shooting gospel you've brought, a world that needs you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.